0: This is CUNY-TV, the City University of New York. City University Television presents The American Theatre Wing Seminars working in the theatre. This seminar, Producing.
1: Welcome to the American Theatre Wing Seminars on Working in the Theatre. These are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, located in Times Square, the heart of the Broadway Theatre, the Off-Broadway Theatre, and the Off-Off-Broadway Theatre all come, and they bring you their wares and the excitement of live theatre, and this then goes out across the country. And from the country, from the regional theatres and university theatres, come their best to nurture and seed the New York theater. These seminars are designed to give you an inside look of what it is to work in the theater from the view of the playwright, the performer, the producer, the set designer, the costume designer, the agents, and the guilds and unions who work with and for the people that work in the theater. American Theater Wing is known for its Tony awards which is televised nationally each year and is a very prestigious award I'm very proud of it it was named in honor of a woman Antoinette Perry who believed in preparation for the theater believed in training for the theater and so that's what this award award is for it isn't for the longest run or the best box office or the biggest and longest review but it's for having achieved excellence in the craft of theater and all of the WINGS programs seem to come from that a long time ago this woman's concept that you should give back to the community through the theater what you have gained from the theater and that's what we do we start with the Saturday Theatre for Children program which is bringing live theater to school children at the earliest age. We go to a new program, Introduction to Broadway, which with the cooperation and generosity of the Broadway producers, we are able to get tickets that we in turn give to the Board of Education, the high school division, and they offer these tickets to students who on their own pay for a ticket. They pay a very small price, but it's a large price for them. And they make the decision to come to a Broadway theater. The interesting and exciting thing about it is that it's the first time for a majority of these children. They've never been to a Broadway theater. And yet, theater has that magic for them. So as soon as a ticket is offered, they raise their hands to come. And now, in its third season, some 30,000 children have come to top Broadway productions through this program. There's also a ticket program that we do so that students can come to the Broadway shows and once again, this is in cooperation with the producers. The American Theatre Wing has many friends and we do the things that we do because of them. We also go out to hospitals, nursing homes and aid centers, again with these people from the theatre. And now these seminars are just one more program of the Wing Services. And today's seminar is on production. The show Full Moon, which is playing at the Richard Rogers Theater, and is indeed a uniquely exciting and wonderful show. And we have with us the producers of the show, the production team, everybody that makes it happen from option to opening and before i continue this i'm going to turn it over to our co-moderators jean dalrymple who has done everything that i've talked about she's been and is an author a producer a playwright an actress and a member of the board of directors of the american theater wing and george white who is president of the o'neill center is a director. I don't think he's ever been an actor. I know he's a musician. He's been an actor, too, a musician, and a wonderfully talented man in the role that he plays in developing playwrights and is also a director at the Yale University. So would you now take over, Jean and George, and introduce the panel to you?
2: Way down there is one of the most important people in a production. And that is Jackie Green, who is the press representative. That's one of the hardest-working people, probably the hardest-working person (laughs) of all these people. (laughs) (laughs) I I tell you that. (laughs) Well, I speak from experience. I was a press (laughs) agent for
3: years. (laughs) And
2: and loved it. Um, Next to her is Daniel Kearns, company manager. There's another very hard-working person in a production. Uh, And he's the company manager of of this wonderful production, Full Moon. And, uh, of course, he's had many, many companies that he's managed. And next to him is, of course, the great David Shiner, co-creator and co-star of Full Moon. He has uh, toured with, uh, with the renowned uh, Cirque du Soleil and Europe in a two-man show with partner René Bazinet, correct?
4: That's it, yes.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and um, now we have uh, the co-producer of Full Moon, and he's currently on the executive committee of the board of directors of New Dramatists and co-produced the award-winning Other People's Money and the musical The Rothschild, Jeffrey Ash. Tell them what you're doing now.
0: (laughs) Other than co-producing Full Moon, together with uh, Jim Freiberg, I'm also co-producer of Long Turn at Lovefish* with uh,
5: George C. Scott and Jamie Gertz and Tony
0: Danza.
2: Thank you.
5: Thank you. On my right and next to Isabel Stevenson is uh, Robert Camelot, who uh, his 42nd Broadway show as a general manager uh, is Full Moon, and uh, which he adds to a hundred off-Broadway shows. Robert Camelot. And uh, next to him, on his left, is uh, Dory uh, Bernstein. Who is co producer of Full Moon and is presently executive consultant for Sony Pictures Entertainment and president, this is mind boggling, of Intergalactic uh, Entertainment, which is a diversified feature TV and special effects production company. Uh, and next to her is uh, the co creator and co star of Full Moon, Bill Irwin, who created the crit- critically acclaimed Largely New York and acted in Lincoln Center in the all star production of Waiting for Godot. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, on my immediate right is uh, James Feidberg, co-producer of Full Moon, who created the American Playwrights Project for Jujamson Theatres, and is the president of Fremont Associates, uh, which has generally managed over 40 theatrical productions. So, welcome all of you, and...
1: A lot of good numbers. <laughs> <you>. Absolutely. <laughs> now, who's going to
5: start this? Bill. <laughs> Not George, why don't sure, you pick this uh, up? Uh, yeah. I would like to ask, uh, though, that, that uh, the, the two stay out of the <laughs> audience for this one, would you say? <laughs> <laughs> um, and just uh, have being, us tied down. down Your yes, exactly. Right. Yeah, we can't go uh, far, yeah uh, t- tell us about how the show got started. Where did it come from?
6: Well, Full Moon is a conglomeration of things that David and I have done much of our lives, uh, brought together with things we invented last night. Some of them and. Uh, I guess just about two years ago, I saw David when he toured in Cirque du Soleil, went back and went back and went back and went back because I thought there were some things I could probably steal from.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and he did.
6: He did. <laughs> the most brilliant clown I had seen. And so I, uh, we had lunch where we didn't know what to talk about lunch. There was bad. nobody in the restaurant? No one no, in the restaurant. Bad food, too. <laughs> uh, then uh, we were serendipitously cast in a movie together where we had to play two clowns in a Sam Shepard picture, and with lots of time in the desert to sort of sit around. So we began to talk about what kind of a show we might do together. And it went from there. I guess David had an invitation that he had to either say yes or no to. And he said, I'll do it if you'll do it with me. And I said, I'll do it if I'm your guest and I don't have to I don't <laughs> have to be the main guy. Mm-hmm. So uh, last summer at uh, Lincoln Center's Serious Fun, we managed by half-hour to put together a show. <laughs> that, that, and we appeared two nights in that in that piece, yeah, yeah. which had no title, as I recall.
4: I, I remember feeling so guilty because we we had to work so hard to put this thing together. We only had, like, two weeks or something. Something like that. We had to put this whole show together, and it was just two nights. And um, I thought, geez, well, that's a lot of work for just two nights. And then I remember telling Bill one day, well, maybe we'll use it again in the future somewhere, <laughs> you know?
5: Well, how does uh, this is interesting too because uh, I mean recently there was an article about a uh, I think it was just the other day uh, in the Times about being a clown one of the one of the uh, circus clowns I mean the ringling clown uh, how do you start being a clown I mean, Oh I don't know it's how do you start being anything
4: you Okay, just sort of uh, some people just fall into it accidentally some people have planned it from birth some people uh, you know study and plan out their whole career it's many different things can happen with me it was just an accident. I always wanted to be a, an, an actor, and
3: uh,
4: I remember auditioning for a Shakespeare Festival in Colorado, and I didn't get the part, so <laughs> I ended up on the streets, <laughs> basically. I saw I saw some clowns on the streets during the summer, and uh, I was working as a carpenter at that time, and I thought, gee, that would be fun. So I went out on the weekends and, and clowned around, and um, during the week I built houses, and it eventually became a... Full-time job.
5: Did you go to yeah. Paris to to learn your trade too? I mean,
4: well, I never starts. formally studied. I um, I originally went to Paris just to uh, just for a holiday for the summer. I had heard that you could work on the streets and uh, the money was good, and I thought, well, gee, that would be fun to go to Paris, work the streets, and uh, and pay for my my holiday, real romantic vacation. And I ended up staying there, so. Um,
1: isn't there a, a, a mime school in Paris? There's oh, there's
4: many. There's many mime schools.
1: And but you, what's the difference between a mime and a clown?
4: There's a great difference. I mean, mime in this country is now really associated with Marcel Marceau uh-huh. or anybody in a striped T-shirt and a white face <laughs> who's harassing you and uh, who does it very poorly. And, uh, you know, I mean, Marceau, I guess, really brought mime to this country and he it's definitely one of the greatest mimes, and um, uh, that is not why I went to Paris. I went there just to, to work the streets, and uh, let me get back to your question. I guess the difference between a mime and a clown is that uh, mime, I would say, is more of a formal, classical form of uh, physical expression, and clowning is, uh, encompasses just about everything. It's comedy, uh, mime, slapstick, dance, and anything you want to put into
1: it. So that the fact that you wanted to be an actor uh, there comes into your clown role as well. That having, I assume, started doing some acting at some point. Did you? Or
4: yeah, I studied. I, I studied theater in college. Where? For a few years, a little little college in Virginia mm-hmm. called Christopher Newport. But we had a wonderful theater department, and we had a, a Polish uh, director who eventually took us to Poland. Took the whole class to Poland to. Uh, visit Kurtovsky and uh, um, lots of other theater schools. We toured, actually, a a play we were doing, Caligula, Camus' Caligula. And let me tell you, that was a heavy experience, because (laughs) middle of winter in Poland doing Caligula. (laughs) What a thing to do to a student, you know? I came back completely depressed, anxious. uh, I dropped out of school. I just couldn't. (laughs) This is not for me. This this can't be what theater's all about.
1: But it really is what theater is all
3: about. <laughs> right? it's one, it's one
4: part of what theater is all about.
1: All right, then, let's let's go to our production, Gene, and see you.
5: You,
2: you can see. Uh, you said uh, you went to Paris and worked the streets. You mean you you clowned in the streets? I clowned
4: in the streets. Yes, there were yeah. some very famous spots to do that in Paris: Beaubourg, uh, the Centre Georges Pompidou, and Saint Germain du Play, which is. Uh, one neighborhood of Paris, and uh, at that time it was about 11, 12 years ago. There were some just fabulous street artists. Just uh, there was Philippe Petit, who's now become a famous mm-hmm. wire walker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was working in the streets. Um, Rene Bazinay. I mean, I could just name a list of people that were just unbelievable. <laughs> the crowds. I never saw such enormous crowds. Um, and these artists holding, you know, crowds of up to six, seven hundred people for for a solid hour. And um, it was a real exciting time.
1: How do they make their living on this?
4: Well, you do do your turns, you do your your act, and uh, you pass the hat. Mm -hmm. And I did that for, I guess, about six or seven years. And I've lived exclusively off the money I made on the streets. Wow.
1: You didn't have to pay an agent for it. No,
4: no taxes. <laughs>
5: no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's right, you can do that over there. <laughs> <laughs> we aren't broadcasting on television yet. Uh, I, yeah, we go to the production team. Uh, this is a particularly interesting uh, issue, and, uh, and perhaps uh, uh, James you could, or Jeff, or Dory could speak to this. Maybe you all could. Uh, how did you come up? It? It's not like receiving a script. Particularly um, <laughs> Why the smirk? Come on. <laughs> yeah, you're
6: absolutely right. There is no script. Yeah. Well so, what
1: what did you I, I made that good phrase from option to openings. Where let's start. Well, what did you get yeah. to say I'm well, going to produce this show? Uh,
7: <clears throat> Actually Bill had come in to see me um, before around that time and mentioned that he was gonna do this. He said, I'm doing this thing but I don't know what it is and I'm kind of a guest, and I was going to have, an, uh, and it was like all, you know, typical Bill, God knows what he was saying. <laughs> and uh, so I, I thought, oh, okay. And then I was off someplace, and then it happened, and I didn't see it. Um, but then I heard about it, and...
5: Um, this is the Lincoln Center? The Lincoln Center situation, yeah.
7: And I had uh, co-produced uh, largely New York which was uh, a previous Broadway piece that we had done, which was uh, with Bill and a myriad of stagehands and many, many actors. <laughs> <in Shakespeare. laughs> it was an unusual piece. Um, and um, it was quite different than this, in that it was actually a play. It actually had a plot, even though there weren't any words spoken. And I knew what this was when Bill sat down and they told me what this was. And then I met David, and I had seen David several times before, so I pretty well knew what it was. And when I first contacted people who had seen it and other people, they all said, yeah, it's perfect for an off-Broadway show. It's definitely an off-Broadway show. That's it. And I went, well, I don't know, because when we did uh, the other show, we played in a 1,600-seat theater on Broadway, and then we went to California and played a 2,400, 2,800-seat theater, and it seemed to be able to come across... (coughs) In a large theatre, and then I'd heard this had played at Tully Hall, and that's 1,100-seated. It all seemed to me that it isn't an off-Broadway show. But when we went around and we decided to look at theatres, we did. I did kind of insist that we look at some off-Broadway theatres. And and the reason was because so many people in the theatre who had seen it had been so insistent that it be an off-Broadway theatre, and were kind of almost like adamant, That I figured I I would just like to see their reaction, because I didn't think it was, and I wanted to see how they felt. And they didn't either. At least I could say to anybody, but we did look at that, and it wasn't that. And and, um, so from there, it came down to deciding who the producing team would be with me. Now, generally what you find happens is that a producer sits down and decides where he thinks he can get the money from. Uh, I'm a very collaborative kind of person, although it may not appear so as I like, dominate some of the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I actually could be, if I <laughs> uh, <laughs> <someday>. <laughs> is that, um I sat down and I said, well, what we want to do is set up a producing team that that can bring something to this to give it a future. So. Um, I had kind of mentioned, Jeff and I had been doing another show together, which was the show he mentioned earlier, Wrong Turner Lundquist, and I kind of mentioned it to Jeff, and he was a gigantic fan of both and had this whole thing and was very, very enthusiastic, and I kind of just mentioned it, but he didn't kind of take me up right away, like, I guess I didn't say, would you like to co-produce it, (laughs) which would have been helpful. (laughs) But I did see that interest. And then I started thinking about, actually, the very first person I called, by the way, was Kenneth Fell because Kenneth Feld knew both of the talents, and he also had a historic record of actually working with this type of performer and, uh, and knew and had also co-produced largely in New York with me, so that in reality, he was a natural, and right away on the phone it was called, Bill's gotten together with David Ch- Yes! <laughs> That's what that... Yes! Whatever, how, what do you think it's going to be? And I said, I thought I'm much. Better. Fine, we're doing it. So that was, that was settled there. And then the next person... Was then I had this then I had this Jeff discussion, which was fruitless, and then (laughs) couldn't figure Um, out what I was doing. At what point in
1: time was that?
7: Uh, That was in the summer, and then the Dory situation came when when my company I had been moving toward a direction of not letting film or television producers come in and take over a production that I have something to do with and taking it on for the future. So I had felt very strongly about having somebody from film and television as a partner, and Dory and I had already been working on some projects together, so I discussed this with her. And the intention was... That what she could do I, when 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 I go into something with people, it isn't that we that we just want to do that show. My feeling is that we want to produce them forever. That our, that whenever they have an idea, we want to be there for them. And so that in a sense, the natural thing would be to have somebody, since both these individuals are also in, interested in film, that somebody come in who could possibly bring them further in a film career if that was if they all kind of mesh together. And that seemed good. So I mentioned to Dory, and she was very excited about it and joined up. And then I went to back to Jeff and uh, and that came to the idea of we need somebody who has marketing expertise involved in the production at Well. So each producer involved had something they were bringing to it. Besides money, money was really secondary. The first thing was really what could they bring to it? <laughs> Dory in a Future possibly in other areas.
5: I uh, want to find out what Jeff ge- and yeah, in, but-
7: in, in, in marketing. And, and Ken, because of his experience in that overall form of entertainment, you might go to Jeff. Yeah, Jeff, What
5: tell about me about uh, yeah. what part of this and, and how, when you heard this, then what your mindset was in terms of marketing the process and the project. Well, when Jim
0: first came to me, I was very excited about it because I did know Bill and David's work. Uh, and even though I didn't quite led on to Jim right away. <laughs> I did have every intention of being involved with it and was very excited about it. Uh, I think what Jim was getting into uh, in putting together a production team that had different abilities as opposed to just raising money is, is quite unique in this setup. Um, Jim being quite a substantial general manager. My background has been in theater advertising and marketing for 25 years. Uh, I'm now with Grey Entertainment and uh, do advertising and marketing for several shows there. Uh, But that, I guess, is my strength in this uh, collaboration.
2: what is your background before becoming a producer? Well, I was,
8: I've was i been a producer in film and television, primarily film, oh. for a long time. But my passion has always been for the theater. Wonderful. And, uh, it's something I've always wanted to do, but I was primarily out in California and, and uh, knew one day I'd, I'd get uh, involved in the theater and um, being tremendous fans of Bill and David, uh, Fantasy first opportunity for me to to move over into the theater. Um, I So my interest was uh, Both to to support the production team with my expertise in film but also to launch uh, a career as, uh, as a pure theater producer as well um, and uh, very much uh, appreciate uh, theater and the um, uh and the, the live theater, uh, as opposed to film, you, you're, um, uh, it's so much more precious. You know, it's you have a show and people um, see it that night. It's not something they can see six months later on a video cassette, or they'll see it at three o'clock in the morning on TV five years from that. You have to be there and you have to see it live, and it's something that has to be nurtured very carefully. And um, for me, it's uh, uh, tremendous,
2: tremendously exciting. And how did how did you use your film experience? You said you you did adapt it to the theater.
8: Well, there's there are tremendous similarities I think in producing film or television and producing theater in terms of you have a budget, you have a schedule, mm-hmm. you have advertising issues. It's it's a lot of the same components, and you just have to learn um, uh, the unique uh, areas that uh, are for theater and, and apply. So did you find it still. an easy step or a difficult one? Uh, generally uh, easy, but there are a lot of nuances that I think take a lot of time, and uh, every show is so different, and, and this show will be extremely different than a musical or uh, than an off-Broadway piece. So, you know, <coughs> 42 shows from now uh, <laughs> on Broadway, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll say it was easy. When
1: did the rest of the components of this come on? How, how do they... Well, on board and, and at what stage? And it's been mentioned a couple of did. times
7: that I'm a general manager, actually a producer and also a general manager. But, um, we have a team concept of the way we work um, in that uh, Bob was brought on, because Bob works with us, he's overseeing three shows that we were doing Bob at once. Camelot. Bob, Camelot, and then <laughs> Bob Camelot. And then the team concept is that he, the show itself was uh, Dan's show that was this is known as Dan's show in the office there's even <laughs> little moons around his door <laughs> and basically uh, which were given to him by Bill they light up and that's, <laughs> so the Dan show was basically the day-to-day nitty-gritty stuff was handled by Dan and then and then Bob oversees the three shows at once and then I come in and second-guess everything how <laughs>
1: and and about you, Dan have you been part of, of the production Company I've worked with
9: um, uh, Jim before. Uh, before this, he had uh, general-managed Catskills on Broadway, which I was the company manager for. And I had worked with him several years before that on Closer Than Ever, an off-Broadway show that he general-managed. And um, we found out we worked well together, and uh, so uh, I pick up the pieces. So. I, well, that,
5: that's what I wanted to say. Be, because. Uh, uh, Jim said uh, that you do the nitty gritty. What is the, n- the nitty gritty for uh, everything? The, the, well, yeah, but, and then, then I want to see what Bob oversees because I think that a lot of people are not clear on what each does. What does a, you know, a company manager do? What does a general manager do? What, what do you do? What is
9: the nitty gritty? Um, well, I, I see it as it, we do work, as Jim says, we do work together very well and it overlaps. But generally speaking, he's the big picture. And he's a, a bigger, another big picture, I'm a small picture. I do the, the the weekly payroll, the uh, paying of the weekly bills. Uh, I go to the theater and check the box office statement. Uh, I have an assistant who also does that. Um, I do, uh, I deal with ticket problems, um, uh, oversee group sales things. I uh, deal with the advertising agency on, on billing. Um, I work with uh, Jackie pretty closely on press events um, and organization uh, of those kind of things. Uh, things um, uh, sure the clowns. I, I go and check on these guys every night. You know, see how they're doing. <laughs> no, he doesn't.
3: <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh,
9: and the Red Clay Ramblers. You know, they they came in from North Carolina. They needed housing. I set up housing. I set up telephone lines. Uh, their dressing rooms needed telephones. Uh, I work very closely with the stage manager Jim Harker and seeing how things are going. Work with the crews. Um, to see if they're. If they need adjustments on the curtains or the, or the lighting, you know, needing calls, and in that kind of area, what happens is that, uh, say, in a call, Jim Harker, the stage manager, would come to me, and then I would go to Bob Camelot and say, "It looks like we're going to need a call," and he then kind of ferrets out what, um, how many people, how many hours, and that kind of thing, and then I will go and translate that into the reality of it happening, and then I would, you know, pay that bill.
5: Okay, Okay. and now, now
9: to, to have you.
5: Blanche, uh, Bob, uh, so it doesn't sound like you have anything to do at all. That's I right.
1: I just wondered why <laughs> he was here. I, exactly.
5: I, I agree with you. I don't right. know why I'm here either. I just collect <laughs> the weekly pages.
10: No. I, uh, I Until today. <laughs> I joined Jim in October of last year. Actually I had some, at least some space from Jim while I was general manager to lend me a tenor. and So we got to know each other and I was at the lessee and he was the lessor. And I paid my bills on time, and he thought that was pretty good. (laughs) So one day in October, when he realized that he had three projects all happening at the same time, which was Wrong Turn at Longfish, Full Moon, and the National Tour of Catskills on Broadway, I think he felt he might need some uh, assistance. So he asked me to to join the organization, and uh, basically what I do is whatever Jim doesn't want to (laughs) do. If he doesn't want to do it, he says, Bob, take care of this. we, uh, uh, we we tend to divvy up the three shows somewhat, and my main concentration actually during this period has been Catskills on Broadway because, as we said, Full Moon was Danny's show. And I do do some work on Danny. Somehow they, with Danny, somehow they discovered that I was very good at labor, labor negotiations and labor problems. So whenever there's a problem uh, that deals with whether it be the stagehands union or uh, any of the other... Uh, 14 unions that we deal with, they give it to Camelot. Take care of it. An example, if you want,
3: yes. uh,
10: when we first started rehearsing, we had to get into the theater. and Because so much activity takes place in the boxes and in the audience, uh, Bill and David wanted to rehearse in the theater. Well, that's just not acceptable. Uh, Why not? Well, because we have certain work rules uh, that preclude that unless you make some arrangement with the stagehands. So I went and did that and explained that we, it was a very special kind of show, and it, they needed to have access to the boxes, and they needed, because, I don't know, have any of you seen the show? How many of you have seen the show?
3: <laughs>
10: <laughs> well, the rest of you better start well, coming. <laughs> <laughs> At any rate, they do an enormous amount of work in the boxes and in the theater. so I kind of handled that. I think if you want to describe what I do, I'm a problem solver. If there are no problems, I have nothing to do. If there are problems, I take care of them. I manage personnel, money, time, space, and equipment. And I deal with that as the need arises and as Jim says, take care of it. And and seriously, Jim is much more of a visionary than I am. He has a very long look at what he wants to see in the future, and I deal with the day-to-day problems. Uh, It has happened that my (coughs) concentration has been primarily with Catskills on Broadway, a little bit with Lungfish, and very little with Full Moon, because Danny and Jim have it all, you know, in hand, and there are very few problems to solve. But
1: well, what you describe is that generally what a general manager's duties are?
10: General managers manage money, time, space, personnel, and equipment. And, that's what we do. That's the definition contracts. of any management. And contracts? Well, of course. I mean, when you say mm-hmm. contracts, that's managing personnel. Mm-hmm. I negotiated the theater contract uh, for Full Moon. Uh, I negotiated and prepared Bill and David's contract, uh, the rights agreement, and things like that. Uh, obviously, always in consultation with the producers.
2: For Jackie, uh, all Hi. of us.
1: What is your background in coming to the? Well, you let me ask one Robert. thing. See,
10: okay. uh, uh, often he's, in,
7: he's a middle person for me. If I don't want to, sp- I may not want to speak to the other side in a negotiation about something, but I want. Him to make certain points because I don't want them to have to deal directly with me because I don't want to have to give him an answer until I get something good else. else to it's,
10: the absentee, it's the absentee yeah,
7: partner creep. So,
1: so, yeah. We yeah, play
10: good, good, cop, bad cop. Sometimes no, I'm no, it's bad cop. Not good Sometimes I'm huh? bad cop. It's only <laughs> <laughs> What
1: is your background? I mean, I began
10: say? as an actor when I was a child, mm-hmm. and then discovered I couldn't make a living as an actor, <laughs> and gravitated to management, and I started managing shows in in 1956 worked with the New York Shakespeare Festival for eleven years, general managed uh, a number of shows for independent producers, Uh, general managed for quite some time, for three years for uh, Manny Eisenberg, and uh, then did some shows independently. I did Fences, Uh, I did Lend Me a Tenor, and then I got connected with this organization, and I'm absolutely delighted. It's, It's a nice relationship. We work well together. Uh, we don't always agree, but, you know, that that's, that's <laughs> no, fine now. Yeah.
2: Jackie, I'd like to hear from you about your ideas on publicizing this wonderful production. I'd like so to hear
7: that, too. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so unique, you know. So you, d- you couldn't start in the way most of us did in the old days. You had to take a new approach. I learned it all from Jim Friedberg. <laughs>
11: <laughs> All right, come on. Well, come okay, on. okay. Yeah, yeah, okay. First, Bye. we had to find a way to describe the show, which... a way that would make everyone happy and right. make the show appealing to people. And we had to just find words to describe a show that didn't have many. So, we, uh, we found... It, I'm talking about the phrase, that, uh, the, the details, like the phrase that you see in a magazine next to the Full Moon listing. We had to find something there. So we found something that everyone was happy with, I think. Who is we? We. Everyone here, except you. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
5: Jean was in on it.
11: Yes. No. <laughs> and uh, then then the nuts and bolts of getting this show on from where, from a press agent's point of view are similar to what you do when for- When did
1: the nuts and bolts start? Oh. It,
11: Couple months before, as far as putting together a program, sending out releases, we had some pictures from we had some pictures from uh, the serious fun, and then we had a photo call in December. But you know, you wait until closer to the production to the actual uh, production pictures. And a lot of it, a lot of our concern was what we would take pictures of that would represent the show. When you shoot video, which is standard part of Broadway now, what you shoot, that you distribute to the news stations, to accompany reviews or interviews. Um, and then also, as far as television appearances go, what Bill and David would do that would represent the show.
5: Well, there's, there's another right. thing about that. You didn't have a script either. I mean, right. So you, you were like a, the normal press situation. I know Gina's gone through it right. how did you, did you do it just in consultation with everybody talking about what it was? Had you seen it before? No, I hadn't seen it. So you had to start from not even with a script,
11: right? Well, and a lot of it, people know Bill and or David, so it wasn't it wasn't that I was saying here are two guys you've never heard of before. So they the, people had some idea, and then the press there's already some press interest as far as advanced features. And uh,
2: what um, was the phrase you found to describe it?
11: Uh, an mm-hmm. evening of sly humor, chaos, and music with the Red Clay Ramblers, well, and Bill Irwin and David, Ch- David China and Bill Irwin. Tell me about
7: baggy pants. Yeah.
11: Uh Oh, well, then there was, in the uh, longer uh, part of the press release, we had a, a quotes from Bill and David, which were sort of purposely cryptic, but I hope amusing.
6: Well, you invented them for us. Well, no, <laughs> no, no, no. They
11: thought it. Uh-huh. it was, uh, I believe Bill said, uh, When you try to describe an evening like this, which is wordless, without using words that might be problematic, like mime. um, Bill said, the quote Bill used was, uh, I'm not at liberty to discuss it, but it's safe to say it involves physical danger and big pants, to which David responded, I've been asked not to comment. I think David really liked that.
6: (laughs) And those really were quotes that Jackie invented for us, because at that stage of things, Uh, David was at home in Germany sometime and here in New York briefly, and we were trying to rev up the belief that we really were going to have a show worth a Broadway ticket in about six weeks' time. So when Jackie would come to us and say, we need a description or we need a quote from you guys, we tended to tell her to go uh, mind her own business because (laughs) we had to find out how to make a door fall down. or, or. how to make a trunk that would do a certain thing. So Jackie really invented those quotes and come showed us, out. what do you guys think of this? That's good. Yeah, I said that. So a lot of the things
3: <laughs> that
6: you see in newspapers, especially in that critical pre-production period when everybody's nuts, uh, you should take with a certain grain of salt because usually there's a sort of... Um,
5: Bright and perky press agent. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah.
5: Well, now you know there's one. There's okay. So so the, you, you, we know now how it how it, how it got there. Then it opened and got terrific reviews. So uh, and uh, how do you keep the ball in the air? Well, okay. I think it's important to, to go. What happened before that a little
7: bit? Okay. Early, because awesome. well, basically,
3: yeah.
7: uh, the way our operation works is a little bit different than other people we don't go on opening night the next morning and have an ad meeting in reality we don't have that at all we basically come up with a program which Jeff and I work on and and Dory is involved in it everybody's involved in it but it's, it's already planned we already know what we're going to do and we had a couple of mistakes that we made a couple of assumptions that didn't work out and a couple of things that did work out on this production number one is that uh, we decided that Uh, we couldn't pre-sell it by doing a large amount of advertising, uh, because we didn't think we could sell it beforehand. And so we made a decision to sell it through the mail, through discounts. And we planned — our plan was that by doing those discounts — and by the way, we're doing another show at the same time, Off-Broadway, which took a completely opposite view on. We viewed that that one needed sales up front. Which was that? That was was the Gary Marshall piece, uh, um, The Wrong Turn at Lungfish. And that one, we did a tremendous amount of advertising beforehand to pre-sell it. On this one, we we made a decision that this one was going to make it in a different way. That one, we felt, was not going to make it on reviews, but was going to make it on who it was in, who was in it, and our past experience of seeing it in other cities where the audiences loved it. This one, the decision was, no, we're not going to be able to pre-sell it. We we're going to be dependent on critical acclaim, and what we're going to have to do here is to pre-sell it through the mail, like Lincoln Center mailing list and so on. And we expected that we would break even during those first three weeks through mail order business at heavy discounts. And we lost $102,000. So, uh, so we, that did not work. In other words, if we had advertised also, we, I, we were right, Jeff and I. We, it would not have sold. So, so then we came to that big crucial moment of when we opened, and we were suddenly in in debt, actually, because we were then — it was over the financing. And here we were. We went out, and they came that — they come before the opening, and there they were. And (laughs) the show happened to be uh, uh, as it usually is, but that night it was also kind of special because, uh, although it wasn't our wildest audience, uh, which may have worked against us in some cases — sometimes when you have a very wild audience, the critics are not totally sure that this is real — it was a very real audience. And, uh, and the and the and the performances were excellent, and we came out of there feeling, okay, we think we have it. Now the marketing plan had been that as soon as the reviews came out, that's when the real advertising would begin, and we would begin to flaunt what we got. Um, it's an interesting thing I was thinking about this morning is when, me personally, when I personally realized we really had something, that we, that we had a hit show. Strangely enough. It was the night after the uh, invited dress rehearsal, because the very beginning of the show and the invited dress rehearsal didn't work very well. And it was different than what's there now. And overnight, the change that the two of them made in that opening was so extraordinary and so Different than what had happened the previous night in one rehearsal period the next day, and was so extraordinary Who that I said, that Oh my goodness, to be done? this is it. It's going to make it big. Who because knew if they can make a change like that, artistically that quickly.
1: Jim, who knew, knew that this needed them. to be done? Everyone. Your, I, the audience? That Everyone in the
6: audience. Uh, Even
7: yeah. <laughs> people who <laughs> weren't at the theatre that night <laughs> seemed to know. <laughs> That's
1: an
6: excellent question. And uh, what we had to do was listen to uh, ourselves, listening to the audience. Uh, we did a dress run-through, which uh, was for an invited audience, and at the time I was furious with our producers, because we had talked about it. Two, three hundred people invited dress. Well, there were about a thousand people there, and a lot of mink coats that you had to say hello to afterwards. Uh, Several. It seemed uh, seemed to us not a good idea, maybe overblown for a first look. But in fact, I guess I'll concede that that probably the the uh, magnitude of our failure, our being off base on that one run-through night, showed us how much work we had to do by eight o'clock the next night, and.
5: to our great surprise, we did a lot of it. We, we <laughs> well, I realize this so. is not a this is not a, 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 a seminar. We've done that yesterday on, on playwriting, but in effect, this is the fastest playwright going on. Uh, is that you're really doing uh, uh, that in, physically? You're, you're you're writing something. right. I guess you're right. Yeah. Uh, and, and but this is
1: an unusual thing to have the performers of a show put that much input exactly. into what needs to be done or undone in the show, and the producer. Being part of the team as well. Well, Normally, the (laughs) the performer doesn't have that that say or that ear of of the producer for what needs to be done. Or if he does, the producer says, "Well, it's working." They laughed, but in here, you you had it. And so, would you say that this is an important part of of producing from now on? Well, no, I think based on on this, are these unusual people?
7: I think a key to producing is. is to know who really has the vision on a show. I think the biggest mistake a producer often has is when he actually believes that he has the vision. That and you I see that in some of your forums now. I listen to producers talk and you think that they created the show. A producer has several risks. One is financial. An artist has many more risks than a producer. An artist not only has financial, but he has an artistic risk and he has A risk that he's on stage in a much different way, and what a producer is is really, in a very kind of strange way, he's a midwife for an artist. What he's doing is helping that artist. But when a producer makes a mistake, is when he actually believes that he has conceived it. (laughs) He's helping it give birth. And and when you listen to a lot of producers, I did this and I did that. Well, I have to tell you, I really didn't do anything. What I did, and what Jeff did, and what Dory did, and what Ken did, is we sat together and said. Well, this didn't work so well, but — and we said, but these guys are brilliant, and they know that, too. And, and we let that process happen. The process that's the mistake is when you go in and say, you screwed up this damn like this, and what you end up with is total chaos, and when you hear this chaos around a show, that usually means there's a bad producer around it. But well, you're also really describing know how to a directorial function, is, too. Yeah. Sometimes huh? the directors,
5: what you also describe yeah. is sometimes what a director's uh, Duty. Duty or, or lack or, or non-duty is here, which is interesting, because that, that is the one Well, the director's a midwife as well. Exactly. Uh, but what that's interesting here is that she's more a director, midwife. except in the, in, the, in the case Jeff, I wanted to come back to you, because we, we kicked in the whole business about marketing, and I wanted to once it happened, what was your take on it, since this is a really an expertise of yours? How, how did you decide, probably in, in concert with Jackie and everybody else, to market this?
0: Yes, it was a very collaborative effort from the beginning. Uh, with Bill and David uh, as well. Uh, I'm going to
1: interrupt you for a minute because I think this is something that that's bothered me a great deal. Unlike any other business, the theater says, Come and see our show, that's all. They put out the blurbs and they take an ad in the Times and, and the Directors, and they expect people to come. Every other business goes out and uses an agency, advertising, direct mail, promotion, merchandising, to Make customers to come into their show, to go out and find customers to come to the show. Why isn't that used more? Why isn't that part of when you say marketing? What? How big a job did you do on marketing? How far did you go?
0: Well, did we you bring did buses gym, in? Did gyms, you bring?
1: airline people in? Did you, what did you do in marketing? No, Where did not, you get No, not the yet we didn't.
0: Uh, we haven't. Uh, as Jim said at the beginning, we did d- direct mail to Lincoln Center's list and to Manhattan Theater Club's list to bring in theatergoers, mostly, mm-hmm. to begin to create a, a word of mouth. Then we waited, as Jim also said, for the reviews, which we felt strongly were going to be wonderful, and they were so we utilized them. Now what we're finding is that people come to the show not knowing what to expect. What is it? It's two mimes. (laughs) They're not gonna talk. Uh, There's a band. Uh, So the word of mouth is is very important, as as it is on most shows. We've now, beginning tomorrow, started, Uh, are starting a new campaign, uh, the thrust of which is ask anyone who's seen it. Because when people come to the show not knowing what to expect, they leave (laughs) being completely delighted and and having seen one of the funniest experiences they've ever had in a theater. Uh, So the word of mouth is enormously important. I brought the ad, actually, that we're going to start <laughs> oh, in good. the Times tomorrow. To uh, it that's it. So with that's a close-up right. of uh, Bill and David mm-hmm. and the headline, Ask Anyone Who's Seen It. Uh,
1: you talked about you went after theatergoers in your direct mail list.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What about going after people who weren't theatergoers? Well, that's what we're doing now.
0: We yeah. uh, we've put a, an enormous sign up in Times Square overlooking the... Uh, tickets booth. We are doing three sheets, which are the big posters uh, that will go at the train stations Mm -hmm. and the airports to bring in commuters and what we call bridge and tunnel crowd. Mm -hmm. We also are doing flyers for the uh, hotels and in the tourist magazines, where to now bring in... This is a show that is... Can be very popular with the non English speaking people. Mm-hmm, sure. uh, mm-hmm. the visitors, or non anything Mil- speaking. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Let's go
1: back to budget. Um, did you. Well, let me
7: just add something to that because sure. basically what we're working on now, when I said we don't have an ad meeting the day after the show opens because we've already planned it, what we're working on right now is July and August. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We've solved May and June. Now we're saying, okay, now. We've got to get to the July and August audience, which is an audience that isn't normally in New York. It's a tourist audience. And so so the plan that's going in now is one that's beginning to to ask anyone. Mm -hmm. We know that most uh, people who come to New York ask New Yorkers what to see. Mm -hmm. see. So we're playing right into that. So it's all a marketing plan that's out for the future. It's not necessarily going to have an effect on next week. It would be nice if it did, but next week looks pretty good already anyway. So it's it's going to uh,
1: when you created your that. budget, did you allow for word of mouth of, of monies to, at the beginning, suppose you didn't get the reviews that you did, uh, would there have well, been money the Well, I mean, that's, that's a budget? very
7: good question because we're talking about that we thought we had a show that would get very favorably reviewed and that we had a really good chance. Actually, uh, the marketing plan that went into effect, which involved a lot of quotes, would have still involved quotes, but would have been probably, we would have moved more quickly to television which we're not doing at the moment, mm-hmm. If uh, which would have been a different form of advertising.
5: And very expensive, too. Yes. Really it would have
7: been a much more expensive situation. We probably, up until that point, we, we were financed at $600,000, we were $102,000 uh, in losses those first three weeks, and we were $30,000 over budget, so we were really $132,000 in trouble at that point, and I, I would have thought, I guessed that if the reviews didn't come through, they would have cost us another quarter of a million dollars, which the general partners would have put up. We had agreed to do that.
5: Well, um, there are two things that, that come to mind. One is. I'd like to get into the what, — what is the budget for the whole show? Was it $600,000? It was $600,000. Right, which is pretty low for a Broadway show. Broadway which is, is
7: extraordinarily low. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. I should add why that was, because uh, these were two performers. There's nobody that can understudy them. They're, you can't have subsidiary rights. Regional theaters can't be doing the show, can't be done by other people. And so when you have a show like that, and the fact that you could have god forbid an injury to one of them or it might be diff- or somebody could become sick and by the way we did have one of them become sick and we did lose some performances but but the point is that when you know you have a show like that then you have to begin to concentrate on your financing to take in those points of view that are going to happen those things you have to realize that you're gonna have to uh... recoup quicker than most shows that you're gonna have to stay on top of things and in the finances of it both david and bill in many ways were brought into that because when they would decide to do something we would then start to price it out and discuss it with them but our purpose was to make sure that artistically they were getting everything they could get and everything they needed which meant that we might have to take it away from something else But that was what we were doing and so in, in fact the reason one of the reasons we became over budget, over the 600 to 630, was because uh, there were some technical things that weren't working out so well in the show when we first started, and we realized we had to rehearse a lot more than we had originally planned to, so to make those things work with stage hands and so on in the theater. And so that raised the cost, but that was a very, very, very wise investment on our part, because those moments have become the highlights of the show. Who, who came up with the title?
5: title.
6: We talked on the telephone a lot about what the title should be, and uh, finally David said, What do you think about Fool Moon? And I don't even think it was our most wildly enthusiastic choice for a while, but then it was well, well, not. I wanted
4: to try and find something that was <clears throat> synonymous with clown and um, uh, um, something that would indicate this style of, of work. Um, so, you know, Full Moon, why not Full Moon? And I. I we wanted to have a moon in it and stars, and we wanted to try and find some kind of red line through the show, something very simple that would sort of uh, create a nice structure for the, uh, the sketches that we, we put into the show. Just did, Jackie, did
5: you find the graphics person to do that wonderful poster?
11: Uh, no, that was someone at Grey.
5: What is done with, with you, Jeff? Yeah. And it was Grey yeah. that came yeah. up
7: with Anything cool. Can Happen Under a Full Moon. So uh,
1: you now have, you have had and, and continue to have a producing company. You're one of the few producers that continue to produce on Broadway with a company, with a general manager, with a, a staff. And, and so that you can bring to it your knowledge and, and, and the background of, of what is too expensive or where the money should be cut or where the money should go. In your budget now. How do you work that in? Who, do you, who decides on
7: um, television is too expensive? The initial budget we is did. done by me. Okay. Uh,
10: and then backers? it's refined
7: by Bob. Mm-hmm.
10: Uh, I get to shoot the holes in it.
7: He gets, it's handed to him and say, okay, second-guess me, do anything you want, and then, and then we kind of, in a way, he'll call me and say, yeah, but this is wrong, because it's exactly this. And I'll say, yeah, but I wasn't doing exact. I want you to do exact. I'm an overall thing. This is what I'm looking for it to be. And I, lo- and I have a percentage column down the right-hand side off of the computer, and uh, it's basically I'm looking for certain things to cost a certain percentage of the overall financing. And uh, I can't even tell you what that is. Each show is different.
3: Mm-hmm.
7: I think sometimes i will say, this needs to be this show needs to have thirty-five percent of its budget to be in financing. This one needs it to be twenty to be in advertising. This one needs to be forty. I don't know what makes me come up with that, but when I come through the whole thing, that's what I'm looking for to man- maneuver that into some position, and that tells me about what the financing is going to be. In this case, I felt that uh, a very small percentage should be in pre-production, of financing, of, of advertising, but in the case of uh, of uh, the other show, I felt it should be over 40%, and this one I felt it should be 20% in advertising. So that's how the budget... Be- I don't know what the bottom line is. It begins to form that way, and then suddenly that begins That's to what off.
1: I'd like to get into, is to what percentage of the whole... And where, where do you... You say you don't know what the bottom line is, but obviously you have to look at it, and you do know. I'm Um, talking about
7: initially. I eventually... But we're we're
1: we're going to take a short break now and there'll be questions from the audience. And so please don't go away. Just stand up, take a deep breath, turn around and sit right down again (laughs) (laughs) so we we can start with this. We're continuing the discussion on what it is to work in the theater. One of the Wing seminars that we do coming from the Graduate Center at the City University of New York. And this seminar that we've been talking about and talking on is a production of Full Moon what it is to put a show on Broadway the wonderful stars of Full Moon are here the manager, the production manager, everybody involved in the nitty gritty part of putting on the show, along with George White and Gene Dalrymple who are co-moderating we're going to pick up where we left before on who does what on the show and how it works so who's going to start that
5: well, I'd like to uh, see uh, how it works, because this is a very, very special show, and, uh, and the two creators are here. As I say, this wasn't really a playwriting seminar, but anyway, it is in a sense it's a creating seminar. Uh, and I assume the show changes to a degree every night, depending on the audience. And I would love to have you talk a little bit about how you interact, because there are, there are those who haven't seen the show, and those even that have, remind them of what, what goes on, what do you do? you want to start and then within then the then show within the show and how, how the whole how it was created and what uh, you do Both. well of course the two of us present these producers
6: with um, a different kind of uh, relationship than is usually the case on a Broadway show it makes for a very um, slimmer trimmer uh, uh poster, because there are our names, and the names of the Red Clay Ramblers, and the seven of us who appear on stage every night really created the show. So there's not a separate playwright, there's not a choreographer other than us, there's not a musical director other than the Ramblers themselves. And in some ways, it sort of simplifies the process. They only deal with the two of us as the prime directors, writers, and performers. And sometimes it comp... in some ways it complicates the process, because the two of us are wearing all those hats, and we had to, especially in the pre-production and in the... Uh, previews had to be doing a lot of jobs at the same time, and we continue to do so every night. So I look over across the wings sometimes before David and I go on for say the T for two number, and he's going. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I remember new, bits, uh, new <laughs> bits, new bits, yeah. Don't forget the new hat bit that we talked about. <laughs> <laughs> uh, drop your cane. <laughs> <laughs> so the show is in constant evolution. Uh, uh, we're not quite working at that sort of lightning, white-hot speed that we were doing previews. Uh, uh, and so in many ways, it's a very different kind of relationship between creators and producers because there are fewer of us and we're doing more jobs at the same time uh, than, than in the usual Broadway show.
1: Does it change to that extent that you have to worry about cues for your stage if you're gonna change a piece of business because if you feel it's not working with the audience?
4: Well, sometimes, I mean, one will need to change a lighting cue or something that um, um, uh, there's not there's not enough light in the audience. For example, when we, when we go out into the audience, uh, we need more light, or we've changed something that isn't working as well as it was the week before, and um, plus there's the personal problem of sometimes you just... Feel down one night, and you think what you're doing is crummy and it's not working, and you want to change the whole thing the next day. And people say, "Don't, Dave, calm down. It's, it's working. It's fine. No, it stinks. <laughs> uh, we, well, you, we gotta have a rehearsal about this. And and then the next day you come in, you're you're stronger, you feel better, and you realize it is working, it is fine. And uh, there's but so many different the levels. But
1: what happens if you feel that way?
5: <laughs> How do you gear yourself up? To How do you pull yourself up? That?
1: Because there's, there's only yourself to pull yourself up. There aren't lines. There aren't. Uh uh, other people on stage with you? What do you do to pull yourself up? What do you do to recapture I don't know. The, the audience? If obviously the audience is involved in this, you feel well, that there's no reaction.
4: Well, I mean, oftentimes, I don't know how Bill does it, but oftentimes I just force myself. I just think, you've, you've got to do this, you, you, you know, you, you have no choice. You, you just can't go out there and you, you have no choice, and uh, I mean, there's no magic formula, there's no suddenly, oh, my public is there, they're waiting. <laughs> No, it becomes a very hard job, and um, the, the amount of stamina and um, uh, energy you need to sustain those two hours is just unbelievable. I don't think people really understand how much uh, an actor needs for this kind of show, to sustain it night after night, week after week.
5: It's uh, Well, particularly because now you might deal with The audience is obviously buried night to night. And if you get a down audience, which I can't imagine for the show because you pump them up rather than I imagine it's a collaborative effort between the audience and you, isn't it? And I know well, that, we were just talking about that last night. Sometimes when we're coming down off the moon, we
4: will say, wow, that was kind of a dull crowd tonight. But. <laughs> <laughs> of course, the audience doesn't hear that. <laughs> <laughs> but you, especially in this kind of show, which is, has such a delicate balance because there there really is a give and take between the performer and the audience. You. Really, are are expecting that the audience gives you some energy back, because, as, as especially doing clown work and uh, physical um, slapstick, and uh, here we are again trying to describe what it is. <laughs> um, you need that response. You need those that laughter. You need to know that the audience is there and they're behind you. But
1: like every every performance needs that. I well, think. you know.
4: Well, a play. It's a
1: question of how you get it.
4: We want laughs. We want want to invoke as much laughter as possible, and we want to know that the audience is there and they're following us. If you have a play, a serious play, um, there's not a lot of laughter. There's a lot of silence. You just have to trust yourself as an actor that you're doing okay, that that the piece is working.
1: You you do quite a bit before the show actually starts with the audience. Um,
6: We scout them. Thoroughly. Well,
5: and, okay. Did you tell what are do you doing? Do? Yeah, tell us how about it. And that. how
1: you do that? And how does the audience react? Or are those people that know you?
5: And what are you looking for when you when you say scout? Yeah, what yeah. are you doing? Well, how I'm, do you do it? I would be very hesitant to reveal where the <laughs> place in the
6: curtain is that we peek through. But, <laughs> okay. but there are a couple, and uh, David especially scouts the audience. Uh, I will. I'll let you reveal your secrets if you care to. But the relationship (laughs) with those people. In fact, the other side of the coin. What David's saying is true also. The pressure is there, and the sometimes uh, excruciating responsibility is there because, indeed, ah, our public is out there, and they they have uh, invested their evening and a fair amount of money in coming coming to see that show. That's what puts the pressure on you. And when we're coming down on the moon, this is what the curtain in is that we uh, the finish of the show is our ascending on the moon. After an evening of a lot of wild physicality, the two of us going up still on the moon has turned out to be the best final moment for the show, as we found. Th- but then the curtain comes in, and we have to ride back down, and the band is scrambling around to get in position to play the, the uh, bow music. And we often do say, hey, that was not the top of the line that night, and when we say, oh, that was not the wildest crowd we've ever had. Of course, we've been doing this long enough to know that what we're, many ways, what we're really saying is we didn't lift them out of their chairs tonight. It was really, we didn't lift things. And that's when you ask yourself the question you were asking, well, what do you do about it? You have to look back into years of craft and figure out, well, uh, what will spark me to spark them, to spark us back?
4: Well, y- well y- that's right. It, it, it's, it's, but it's also very, um, sometimes this... Whole thing can be so confusing because you're not getting back what you're putting out. You're putting out all this energy and you want a response because, I mean, we, we bring people on stage, we work directly with them, so we're provoking, the audience becomes part of the show, whether they like it or not. And um, uh, so you're hoping that there will be a response. And when there isn't, oftentimes you think, well, I'm just really bad tonight. I just, you know, I'm not putting out what I should be putting out. But some nights you're putting out 150% and still nothing's coming back. And you think, boy, it's just too bad that they're not giving anything back.
7: <laughs> and then at the end of the show, they stand up. <laughs> so you can't figure it out. You yeah, just, I want to say you something. Just that. You
3: just
7: <laughs> <laughs> I want to say something like because this is something very unusual that's happened. We have two, we have three comedies running right now. And every night on my answering machine, each stage manager calls in and gives me a detailed report on everything that's happened in that show, including the audience reaction from beginning to end. And there's a very strange pattern, and that is that consistently all three stage managers' reports about the audiences have been the same almost every night. When I'm your audience is quiet and doesn't stand, mm-hmm. so are the other two. <laughs> when your audience is quiet and they stand at the end, almost every Eighty percent of the time, the others do too, and there's something I've always had a theory. About <laughs> it's a really strange thing about about audiences and and what's in the air and what our moods are as people and how people come in, and it seems to be that this pattern has been fairly consistent. There was one night I think it was last Tuesday or something where. Both shows had very quiet audiences and both got standing ovations at the end.
1: Is there a difference between a matinee audience and an oh, evening sure. audience? Oh,
7: mm. Big
10: difference. Do you find, Jim, that there's a difference uh, that Saturday night audiences tend to be somewhat down? Because Not in this show. Not in this. That's show. one of the, the, the big differences
7: in, uh, in Full Moon is that the Saturday night audience reports have been consistently um, unbelievable, much higher. And that also has been the case in the Gary Marshall show, too, mm-hmm. strangely enough, of late. But in this show it's been unusual that way. That Saturday nights usually Saturday night audiences are that way. They're kind of quiet and not that? in this show.
10: Because they come rather it's usually a date audience, it's usually an event audience. We go out on Saturday night and there's a desperation to have a good time. It's also a show rather than just going with Saturday it. Night, just night, just yeah. letting it flow, mm. you know. It, it Because Saturday night is a special,
9: you know, kind of thing. And there's more full-price tickets, so they want to say, show me, prove yeah, exactly. it. Mm-hmm. You know, all right, I'm ready. You know, <laughs> you know mm-hmm. But in this show, the audience reactions on
7: Saturday night have been extraordinary, consistently, right from the very first Saturday night preview we ever did. Since
1: we're talking about audiences, do you have a cut-price ticket? Do you have a rush ticket? Do you have... Well, we angle? have a lot what of you different are... ranges,
7: Yeah, we have We have a lot of different ranges, and of course, there's always ways to get tickets. For every Broadway show, you know when we hear about, oh, Broadway tickets are $65, well, Broadway tickets are $65 if you're lazy, but they're really not $65 if you know how to get tickets for less. If you
1: go to TDF. Yeah, the not box just is that, what about not the
7: just box TDF, office? TDF, you can go to the half price. Our box office, we have a low price of $25, and it's not for a ticket that I that It's a ticket that we normally sell. We, we say it's obstructed because it's in the second section of the mezzanine, and we normally sell it at the booth for you know, either 25 percent, which is eighteen dollars, or whatever it is, or $12 or twelve dollars, something like that. Uh, we also have a group sale situation uh, where you can buy a group in the in, in a certain way, at the last minute for a big discount as
0: well. This is very much a family show too. That. Uh has enormous appeal for children and the matinees, the Sunday matinees and the do you Saturday have a, matinees.
1: a child bringing a, a, a grandparent for free?
0: No. <laughs>
8: we don't need to do <laughs> that. <laughs> I, I think what you find um, it, with Full Moon is that you have uh, an adult audience come and love it and, and some of them weren't expecting to love it as much as they do and they are coming back and bringing grandparents and bringing children, bringing families and, and in the summertime I think bringing out-of-town guests. Uh, I think there's a lot of repeat business. I'm yeah. oh, sure. Uh, we've been asked to
1: why there hasn't been family prices. under uh, people parents who want to bring their children to a theater. They said it is so expensive. Wouldn't there be a, a family price if you had? Well, a I think to there's been a big children? problem
7: with that. Uh, our price, by the way, is the lowest price on Broadway. You want to say how much? it our is? Our top price is forty-five dollars, and our low price is twenty-five dollars. Uh, and you can still buy us. At why the booth does it have so to on? be
1: forty-five dollars when? it's only two people and one because, oh.
7: because alright, oh. well, wait a second well, let's do wait a second, a second. <laughs> it's two people and it's five musicians and it's 14 stage managers not that, stage, stage, stage hands and it's stage, it's, and we still pay rent for the theater and we still have all the economics theater. that everybody has. and we spend $45,000 a week on advertising, sometimes more it still is, still the cost and yet, we are still able to do it at a lower price than any of the other things your shows on the theater. Our weekly nut runs about 150 dollars to $160,000 a week,
3: mm. no.
7: depending on what we're spending on advertising. Uh, and there's nothing you can do about it. Do I agree with the economics of the theater at the present time? No. I wish everybody would say, let's all take cuts and get it down to a realistic price. But the fact is, it's yeah. not happening. Mm-hmm. I'll well, I, do it. I, I have. To have ask nobody else seems to want to. And Bill and David, I, I can tell you, have. To.
1: Is there any way of doing it? I'm going to before we turn this over to questions, that my, that's my one question
7: constantly. Is there any way yes. to cut the If difference? The theater owners and the producers are willing to take a strike that would shut down phantom of the opera layman and all those shows like that yes there is and i will tell you that they would be crazy to do that economically and that's why they're not doing it. that is the problem and also if there were more professional producers instead of people coming into this industry who really aren't producers that are from other industries and passing on the responsibility financially to other people to handle for them we have an industry that does not have management that is within that, that is on top of their, their, their business, is not their primary business and is the reason that we were able, as professional producers to mount this show for $600,000 instead of a million and a half, which many other producers would be done. And it's the reason that some shows are, <laughs> are mounted for $10 million that should really be managed, mounted for $4 million. It's because there's lack of management in the industry. We could spend 10 hours on that some other time. But
3: no, that's well, the I, I
1: agree with you. That's one of the reasons why we do these seminars is no. to be able to have people like you pass on that knowledge that there aren't enough around. And I think it's so important for the future of the theater that we have experienced people,
7: not it's just for this one show, but... but very briefly, Isabella, is one thing I will tell you that I really think was the key to the change in this industry. In the era of the great producers, the really great producers, like these people here, who did, did that for a living, they didn't have a situation where a producer could make money on a show, even if the investors didn't. In other words there weren't producers royalties the object was the producer made money when he paid back the investor now the producer can make money even if he doesn't pay back the producer and as long as that exists the economics of this business are destroyed and that's why there's fewer shows happening and that's why when we hear about the great producers we hear about the robert whiteheads and we hear about people like yourself we hear about those people because they were the great producers because they really did it for a living and for a love of the theater. They weren't from some other business looking to take a lot from it not give to it. And if we can get more people doing I this for a living, we more. will have better economics.
3: <laughs>
7: My name is Mel Silverman. I'm an avid theater goer who was not at all sure he wanted to see this show. I've seen it three times, and I, I've become really great fans of the two performers, and I'd like to ask, if I may how you manage to select audience members who can perform so effectively with you and produce <laughs> such laughter with different audiences every night
4: <laughs> well first of all it's not a hundred percent effective every night. Uh, that's that's the main problem and you know that's why my hair is getting thinner and um, it's i mean i've been working with people and directly with people on the streets in the circus in the theater for almost 15 years and working with so many different types of people from all over the world, because when I was working on the streets there were always tourists from every, every part of the world, you just begin to judge very quickly by the clothes they're wearing, how they're sitting, how they're looking at you, how they're talking to their friends, what kind of personality type they are and um, what they would best be suited for if I brought them on stage. And so I'm looking for those types of
9: things. Thank you.
5: Thank you.
6: Thank
9: you. Thank you. I would like to ask Bill Irvin, um, I think it would be interesting to know if you would just explain to us what it was that happened that first evening (laughs) uh, that was maybe artistically miscalculated, what the response was that made the change, and um, how you figured out to make the right change.
6: That's a very good and challenging (laughs) question. We did, uh, as I mentioned before, an invited dress rehearsal. Uh, the night before our first paid audience, our first actual audience, at least half full of people who really were paying money to see it, And uh, all through the rehearsals for the show and the discussions, the uh, sometimes long distance phone, sometimes late into the night, just talking about what the show should be, which is all in the abstract, of course, because it doesn't happen until the people are there. But we kept thinking, we ought to have some dialogue at the top of the show, which will A, right away show people they're not in a mime show. It'll also, it's stuff I enjoy writing and doing, and it'll, it'll settle people in, and then we'll do the rest of the show. And in fact, when we did the sort of prototype uh, version of the show back in the summer for two evenings at Lincoln Center, we did do some dialogue at the top of the show. So this was, uh, we kept changing our minds about what the dialogue should be. Every other day of rehearsal, we come in with rewrites, but we were absolutely sure that the show should start with some speaking. We put those mic packs on. and. We went out there the first night and did it in front of this invited dress audience and realized that was as wrong as it could possibly be. And we had, like I said before, till 8 o'clock the next night to figure out what the opening of the show, which is the time you either get people or lose them, ought to be without dialogue. How it ought to somehow come into, come into sync with the, what the rest of the show was, a lot of which we have since changed and we knew then that that was wrong too, but we certainly felt that the opening moments were not what we wanted to be. So we came in, and as Jim says, uh, very expensive stage time the next day. <laughs> you, you, One of the great challenges for creators in the theater is to walk out on the stage and sort of kick things and think about the people out there, when in fact everybody behind you wants you to make some decisions, show some people where to go, move him over there and tell us what you're going to do tonight at 8 o'clock. What David and I did was go up into the a part of the audience box and figure out how uh, I ought to come out somehow get him tangled up and get him down onto the stage and it ought to be excruciatingly funny and it ought to take about four minutes. And what you need to do in doing that is to sort of rub your eyes and let conscious thought go away for a while. So, at, a, at about $18,000 a minute, that's
4: what... <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you, know, you know, what's interesting about that is, when I was working with Bill, putting the show together, is uh, there, were, there were moments when we would be stuck, for, for example, in the opening, and I'd be sitting up in that box going, what are we going to do? And I remember the, what we finally figured out, I remember Bill was working with the microphone and uh, I was sitting in the box going, well... What are we going to do? And suddenly, he just showed up with the microphone in the box, <laughs> and he started some bits in the box. He was just playing around, and those bits, I thought, well, and it just started to cascade. And uh, uh, it's just—it's interesting how things will just develop
7: that way. Well, I think there's one mo- one additional thing very quickly to that is, and that is that the most important thing that happened during that day is not one producer went in the theater. <laughs>
3: mm-hmm.
7: Because that could have caused a problem of get speeded up and and, and do this and do, you know it's going to cost us that. Everybody was smart enough to stay away, and that's
6: good producing. I have to say that's true. We had screamed at them the night before. I, I <laughs> but just, you, just, I, me, just. Yeah, me. I'm not sure, but no, that's absolutely true. Uh, nobody came in and told us what to do. Nobody came in and told us you really ought to be using these minutes faster, fellas. Don't you think you could uh, uh, show us some staging, or maybe there's some paper that you generated the night before? We had not. We just knew there was a chunk of the show that was absolutely wrong. We had to look for a way that made it feel writer, and then we had 16, 12 previews from then until judgment is passed by the by the critics, to uh, to refine that and get it writer and writer. And there's just one thing I'd like to throw in in those lessons learned category. A show like this, Jim is right, and we all nodded in agreement. We had you have to keep it uh, as inexpensive as possible in putting it on. That will allow for uh, family ticket prices. That will allow for a show to Uh, go on Broadway where the people doing it are the only people who can do it. We all knew we had to keep capitalization down. The one thing that I would uh, think differently in terms of priorities and looking back is that when you have a show with no out-of-town tryouts and only 12 previews, as we had 12 or 13 previews before you go and play for the people who are going to tell you whether you're good or bad, uh, every minute of... Rehearsal time on the stage has to be thought of as necessary, and it, we made the mistake of not thinking every minute would be. Maybe we could only use half the time. And again, <laughs> it's about it's several hundred dollars a minute, several thousand dollars a minute. Now I look back and we realize that's when a show like this, in many ways, comes together. That's when the playwriting is done. Before that, you're sort of noodling in the abstract, and you're kind of thinking, wouldn't it be great if? But when you get in front of preview audiences, they tell you, no, that's not so great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, that's great. And so if you took that further, you'd, you'd be better off. It's then the time with the stagehands, who I think generally earn every dollar of those precious hours, because they're there pulling ropes. They're pulling them one way. They're putting them back. A couple of uh, skinny actors tell them, pull it harder and faster, so they do it harder and faster. They make the things work that we want to have work. And it costs a lot of money during those precious hours because the lights are on, all the stagehands are working very hard. Uh, If ever we should do this again, (laughs) (laughs) I would just say that every... We we would have to plan on having every minute conceivable to rehearse in the theatre, under the lights, before the next preview audience. Then you see what that audience says? Then you go the next day and do it all again, because then you've learned a little bit more.
7: Well, one addition to that is every time you do a show, as a producer, you learn something. Every show's different. The financing, everything's different. You learn something every time you do a show. That was an unexpected thing that we learned. And the next time we do something, that will be in there, because we'll know. But uh, The greatest thing about this business is it's never the same. That makes you want to come back again.
8: Would you ask your next question? Yes, my, my question is to the good producer um, to find out what his early work experience was that led up to your being able to instinctively budget and make decisions. What was the beginning of your work experience as a producer?
7: Jack
0: That's you. No, who, that's <laughs> <say>. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry,
8: sir. Uh, Mr. Friedberg. Friedberg, Friedberg sorry.
7: I was in Wall Street 30 years ago, and I was a block trader. So that's where I learned risk.
8: <laughs> but since I worked in the theater, I don't know what a block trader is. Could Somebody you? would
7: call me and say, they have two million shares of Greyhound to sell. And I'd say, what's it selling at now? And they'd say, 22. And I'd say, I'll tell you 19 and a half for it. And I'd buy it. And then I'd trade it out. And it was an instinctive thing of understanding risk and being able to go to bed that night and, and sleep knowing that if I was wrong, millions would be lost. Well, that risk part of this is, and this is a very high risk business, don't fool yourself. When, when you buy that block, you're losing the Wall Street firm that you work <coughs> for. When you buy the block here, you're losing your own. And so this is risky. And once you learn risk, and you learn how to deal with risk, you learn how not to get nervous in risk, then you learn how to make decisions. And, you, and, and a lot of it is instinctive feelings of what tells you. In your guts about something, and I've done a lot of shows, and uh, I guess you sort of can look at something and decide what you think it would cost. After a while, it's hard well, to say. Well, what
8: job that. made you leave? Every job dealer. I've ever had has
7: taught me for the next job I've done. Every show I've ever done, I just what Bill was just saying. With, I learned a lot from that moment of when yeah, we I had think, to do stuff I on stage, and I learned it for the next is, thing.
8: What was yeah. the job that took you away from Wall Street and brought you into the nefarious world I, I was the very
7: uninterrupted. Un- I found it boring. I didn't like dialing for dollars. I, I really wanted to do something else. <laughs> I found myself uncreative, and I wanted to do something, and I, since I wasn't really creative, I couldn't write, I couldn't dance, I could crack a joke, down. but <laughs> stuff like that, I realized that I really wanted to be somebody who worked with people who were creative and be in a support position where I could uh, be helpful in that process. And I found that rewarding.
1: In what Occasionally, case, I, I go in direct <laughs> just to see
7: what bad oh, I think we have
1: just time for a quick <laughs> question.
7: Oh, well, I was going to ask, my name is Adam Kovacs, if a show isn't doing too well, how do you decide when to close it without losing too much oh, money? Oh dear, I don't want to I end on that. You almost answered <laughs> it now.
1: Um, I, I that's a decision that a producer makes and uh, economically, I guess. And, that yeah,
7: I think that that's the same as a decision. Should I produce the show?
1: Yeah, that's that's I mean, part that, of that, I think. That, 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 but that's that, 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 a you know. terrible way to end yeah. this, <laughs> this <laughs> seminar, because I think that this show is going to go on and on and on. And and I, I am once more. I'm out of, of apologies for not being able to continue with the questions that we want to continue with, and and to get the answers that everybody wants. But you have all been so very constructive and you you've helped so much in telling what it is that went into putting on Full Moon this extraordinary production it's at the Richard Rodgers Theatre and the producers and the creative people here have given so much of their time and it's been so thoughtful in telling us how it is to work in the theatre from the end of the production company, from the nitty-gritty work all the way through to the creative work that the audience sees and appreciates. This seminar is coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and it is one of the programs of the American Theatre Wing's year-round programs. I'm Isabel Stevenson, President of the American Theatre Wing, and I thank you all for coming here.
3: I'm, I'm just a and I think